Thank you. Great. Um, morning, everybody. Um, as uh, as Emma said, we're continuing to look at people in prayer, and we're going to look at um, uh, someone uh, in the Bible. You might struggle to work out whether you pronounce it Job or Job. The actual pronunciation is probably more like Yov, because J is is Y in Hebrew pronunciation, and B is more like a V. So, so Yov, if you like. Now, this is um, one of the oldest writings, not only in the Bible but in the whole of human history. And the interesting thing about what we're going to look at, um, that there's a, a prayer between Job and the Lord, um, probably about three quarters of the way through this uh, book. So there's quite a lot of setup that we need to talk about to understand what's going on. Um, but it's based around real events. So Job was actually known about in other writings, not just in the Bible, in other ancient Near East writings. But this is super, super old. He's probably a contemporary of Abraham, but from another, uh, you know, not from the kind of same area. So, um, but here's the thing, based around real events, but it's not actually a history book, okay? This is not a history book. It's a play. We're being invited to a play, right? So, which is probably why if you're reading like the book of Job during your kind of quiet time, you read like four verses at a time, it just doesn't work because it was never meant to be, it was, it was never meant to be done like that. It's meant to be, experienced as a play so we'll probably be a bit of a theater critic today as we're going through that in fact Tennyson said of it he said this is the greatest poem of ancient or modern times and it's looked at as one of the greatest works of literature in the whole of history it's about the same length as a feature film about 105 minutes long uh, but you'll be pleased to know we're not going to go through it line by line <laughs> um, but but look it, the thing is, it's a play, but it's a God-inspired play. It's still exactly God's word to us. And there are three sort of main acts, right? There's a prologue, which is kind of prose but, and story narrative. Then there's a big middle bit, act two, which is which is poetry. It's this amazing dialogue. It's three cycles of dialogue between Job and three of his friends, plus a nearby standing young guy at the end, and then with the Lord. And then there's an epilogue that goes back to prose at the end. So um, let's just understand a little bit about it. Let's take a bit of a synopsis. Uh, let me see if I can use the Yeah. So in that first bit then. So let me tell you about Yov. Yov has everything, right? He is staggeringly wealthy. He's got thousands of camels, oxen, sheep, servants. He's kind of what we would call in the top 1%. But here's the thing. He's done it ethically. He's got a loving family with seven sons and three daughters. He's exemplary in his generosity to the poor. We find that out later in the in the book. He's a moral leader respected in his community and he provides pastoral and practical help to people who are struggling. And they turn to him for advice when life just doesn't make sense. He's got a passionate faith, right? And he's got an unrivaled purity. In fact, there's another point in the Bible where in the Old Testament, I think it's Ezekiel, where it looks across all of human history and, and it picks out three people as being the most righteous people in history up to that point, which was Noah, Yov, and Daniel. So, you know, he's in pretty esteemed company. He's a pretty amazing guy. And um, uh, the thing is, um, he, I've put on that poster child because you, you probably heard the expression today, you know, nice guys finish last, right? But actually, 
Um, that's not what people believed uh, in those times, quite the opposite. What they believed was if you're obedient, you'll be blessed and life will go well for you. And if you're disobedient, then, then, then life will go badly for you. So in other words, you know, whether it was uh, the God of Abraham or any other gods, it was basically like mess with the gods, do bad stuff and things will go badly for you was the crux. But actually, and actually, Yov is absolutely the poster child for this, this view that religious belief obedience brings blessing and actually as we the audience to this play that's what we all believe as we're going into this because that's kind of just how world the world works so here's the setup in the prologue right um that's kind of like um i don't know you'd probably call it like a, a god having a management meeting you might say with his angels and one of them has a job of, of, of accuser and uh um and uh God is bragging, saying, yeah, look, at, look at Yov, isn't he? He's an amazing guy. And uh, I'm just so proud of him. And uh, the accuser says, yeah, just because you give him loads of nice stuff. And um, so that sets up, that's the setup for the play. It's a heavenly question. Isn't all faith kind of just materially based? Do people just like follow God because we get rewards for doing that? So God bets on Job. And uh he wants to answer a fundamental question about humanity. Are we actually capable of good or are we just purely selfish and trainable? It's actually what most of economic theories based on the idea that man is inherently selfish and uh, you have to just work with that. But it's also about God. Is he lovable apart from his rewards? So that's the setup. There is a heavenly question going on. So what happens next? Well, uh, God says to the accuser, you know, you can go and mess with his life. Um, and um, the next thing that happens, and this is probably how you know that it's a play and not a history book, because this is quite stylized what happens next. So what happens is, messenger comes in. Uh, oh, the, the oxen were plowing and donkeys were grazing nearby. The Sabians attacked and they made off with them. And they put the servants to the sword. And, and I'm the only one who's escaped to come and tell you. Another messenger. The fire of God fell from heaven. It burned up the sheep and the servants. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Oh, the Chaldeans, the, the raiding party swept down on your camels. They made off with them. They put all the servants to the sword. I'm the only one who, who, who escaped to tell you. Oh, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. Suddenly a mighty wind swept from the desert. It struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they're dead. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Ooh, can you imagine just being in the audience and seeing that? Sharp intake of breath. What a mess. What a way of messing with your worldview that the obedient people and the religious people get all the blessing. You couldn't see a faster, more complete takedown of someone's whole life in literally gone in 60 seconds, 60 seconds of dialogue. And all of that's happened in four different places. Um, you know, each one probably once in a hundred year event, as they might call it, but they've all happened to him just like that. The next thing that happens is just incredibly dignified and incredibly beautiful. Job is completely wrapped with guilt, with grief and with gratitude. The grief we understand, but the gratitude is something else. He says, you know, I came into this world with nothing. Going to go out with nothing as well. So God gave it 
God took it away. Well, may the name of the Lord be praised. Uh, that's just so dignified in 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 the face of sh- shocking um, suffering. But then there's another wrinkle because back in heaven, um, the accuser pops back up again as as God is saying, "Look at how he has responded," and he gives us, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah." Wasn't really a real test though, because you know what? Self preservation. People will do anything as long as they're okay. Okay, says the Lord. Well, you can't kill him, but is in your hands. The next thing that happens is he's got chronic pain all the time. He's covered with sores from the top to the bottom of his body. He's in incessant itching. He's using a piece of pottery to scratch himself. And um, and not only that, his marriage really looks pretty rocky as well because his wife turns to him. She completely bails on this idea of faith and actually she suggests suicide. She says, you know what? Curse God and die. So he's lost everything, and the person who he wanted to share his life with most closely to him basically is saying, just give it up. Just end it all. Whew. That's uh, that's act one. So now it's probably time for the intermission. You probably go and nip to the loo and maybe get some Maltesers or an ice cream or a glass of wine, and, and, and you come back for the second act of the play. The next scene is the dung and ash heap outside the city. Okay, so this is some. I wonder if you can just imagine for a minute the smell of someone sitting amongst dung that is being burned and ash and scraping. And he's the look of him is just at rock bottom. In fact, so much so that his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, and also a young man's kind of lurking about as well. Um, they come along and they just cry. They're just in tears because this guy who was absolutely the pinnacle of what everyone thought of as success is just so wretched, just so broken. There is tears. There is silence. There is companionship for a week. A whole week. And finally, Job speaks, and all he can really say is, I just wish I'd never been born. He's really, really struggling. And then there ensues these three long arguments with his friends, his three friends. So let's just hear a little bit about what they've got to say. This is Eliphaz, who's the oldest of the three, and he starts because... Older people start when you're talking about things with wisdom. Uh, they get to go first. And actually, he's quite kindly, but here's what he's really saying. You know, you, you've helped other people, but consider who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? He goes on, blessed is the one whom God corrects. So don't despise the discipline of the Lord Almighty. He's kind of appealing to him. But no, says Job. I'm not confessing to something I've not done. So it doesn't really um, fit with Eliphaz's view of the world. Bildad is the next, and he's a little bit more younger and probably not quite so diplomatic. How long will you say such things? You're a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what's right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now, 
he'll rouse himself on your behalf and restore you. Whew. He's right between the eyes. And what he thinks is really clear. This can't be happening unless you've done something wrong. Or if you didn't do something wrong, your kids certainly did something wrong because they've just been wiped out. But again, Job stands firm. I haven't done anything. I don't understand what's happening to me. And then so far comes in. So that looks on my screen. That looks like it's coming from your mouth. Emma. Sorry about that. <laughs> Just because of where your picture is on the, the ball. I don't think that at all. Um, so far, so far comes and says, do you know what? You know, is no one going to rebuke you? Oh, I can't believe what you're saying. Saying you're flawless and pure. I wish God would speak that he'd open his lips against you. Know this. God's even forgotten some of your sin. And a bit later, surely he recognises deceivers. I think we know what he's meaning there. Devote your heart to him. Put away the sin in your hand and surely you'll forget your trouble and life will be bright again. It'll all be fine if you just admit it. Now, Job is absolutely devastated, right? But his integrity won't let him just play along to fit their really rigid view of theology and of how life is supposed to work. And this is the whole play, right? This is how dramatic irony plays out. We all know, because we were there in Act 1. We saw what was going on with heaven, in heaven. Job didn't see that. Neither did his three friends. They have no idea. And that's the whole point we know and they don't know. Job cannot make sense of it. So, of course, um, you know, his friends say, well, look, you just need to recognise that your difficulties are because of sin. Because God's never to blame, so it must be you they're dead set on trying to answer whereas heaven was the heavenly question that was trying to be answered was will people uh, if you like is is faith just about rewards but they're they're not thinking about that they're thinking about a very earthly question which is for their theology isn't all suffering just moral because the innocent can't suffer so anyone who suffers can't be innocent right this reminds me a lot of um uh the last probably three or four years in the UK, we had a, a internet provider called TalkTalk Talk, and their call centres are famously bad. And uh, our internet uh, connection really didn't work properly. And it didn't work properly for three years. And I spent hours on the phone, right? I would phone up and I'd be like, ah, oh, you know, this is and it's super slow and we don't really know why. And they'd be, okay, right, you know, authentication. Now, have you tried this? Yes, I've tried that. Well, can you run a speed test? Yes, I can run a speed test. I've run a speed test, just like last time I found you. Is there an issue with the socket? If there is, that's not us. Yeah, no, no issue with the socket. Well, is it your computer? No. And the thing I found was there was no picking up where you left off, right? Because this call centre just, they had an algorithm. And basically, each time it took nearly two hours to get through all the things it could be. And the, the issue was, my problem didn't fit the script. So I ranted and I raved and I and and then I'd give up and I'd phone again a couple of weeks later and we go through the whole thing again. We could never uh, break through because it was a perfect closed system, but completely useless for the reality that I was experiencing. That's what these three friends view of the world is like. It's like they've got a level one view of God in a level four situation, if I can use a COVID analogy. It just doesn't work at that level. Might be all right when life's going fine and things are ticking along, but it just doesn't work. So you can imagine 
that Yov is absolutely at his wit's end. And um, he's got mood swings all over the place, right? And uh, he, he can't let go of the fact that I've got a right, I've been living right. He thinks back to how happy he was, how humiliated he is. And he then goes through trying to rack his brains. And his view and his understanding of righteousness is, frankly, it's, it's just like something out of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, that kingdom living in a, in a broken world we did. He's thinking about, I haven't even looked lustfully at a woman. I've cared for the poor. I haven't, uh, you know, trusted in my wealth. I haven't abused my power. I've been a good employer. I've cared for my enemies. It's amazing the revelation he's got about what uh, good life means. And ultimately, he comes to this. Oh, I cry out to you, Lord, but you don't answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. He goes on. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. I give an account of every step. So he's calling out. And then, something none of us expect happens. There is a whirlwind. And as we're watching, as the audience in this play, we see that heaven and earth collide because a voice comes from the whirlwind. And we think, this is the big reveal. This is what was happening. The setup right back in Act 1, where there was quite clearly a purpose and a higher purpose of it all. This is the big reveal where finally, these guys are finally going to get to see. This is what was going on. But here's the thing. That's not what happens. Instead of addressing Job's questions, God poses 50 questions of his own. Job, Job has uh, tried 36 times he's asked God to come down and have it out with him and speak to him. And so God just says, man up, I've got some questions for you. Time for some answers from you. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Where does the light go? Where does the light come from? Where does the darkness go? Do you know how to get there? Does the rain have a father? Does Who gives birth to the dew? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? Who gives intuition to the heart and instinct to the mind? Who provides food for the ravens when they young cry out? And on and on, his questions keep keep on raining down. Um, is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar and spread its wings towards the south? And on and on. And... Um, Job gets quieter and quieter and very, very still. He just says, I've got no answer. I've said too much already. I've got nothing more to say. And we could stop at that stillness because in understanding that God is creator and he's a creature, um, the psychiatrist John Wright 
John White wrote this. There's something profoundly healthy about being small and reduced to silence. He is at peace who's seen himself appropriately placed in the total scheme of things. To know that we're small yet accepted and loved and that we fit into the exact niche that a loving God has carved out for us is the most profoundly healthy thing I know. But God doesn't rest there because actually he has more questions and one in particular. The next bit in uh, the book, God talks all about the hippopotamus and uh, the alligator, and you know, uh, all of that. But, but actually, there's one really fundamental question they ask quite early on, which is this. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? And that's the crux of what God's feeling. You can almost sense the really um, in that you, you can you can sense that that would be the one thing that would really um, affect God. And you have said this, I know you can do all things. Do you know what? I was speaking about things I didn't get. He said, my eyes had heard of you. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Oh, I hate myself. I'm going to repent. I need to change my, my mind, my outlook. He wasn't saying I'd sinned and that's why bad stuff happened to me. He was saying, I've realised that my view of you just needs to change. And uh, so then we get the epilogue. And this is really just to ram the point home to us, just so that we totally get it the, as the audience. So, so first of all, God says to the three friends, your theology, you spoke of me wrong. So don't quote any of those guys because it's bad. It's, it's not true what they're saying. All that stuff about it's completely mechanistic and, you know, only, you know, only good people uh, do well, only bad people do badly. It's not true. It's not something you can rigidly apply to every situation. Not only that, uh, he says, Job will be your priest. You can make an offering for your sin. He'll receive it and, and, and uh, he will make a right for you. And then there is a material demonstration, because remember, that's the only understanding of the, the people of the day. Their real understanding was, you want to know how good someone is? Just look at their wealth. Just look at their blessing. And so God says, in, in case you haven't heard that it doesn't work, like, you know, that, that, that I've, I've not got a problem with Job. Let me explain. He has another seven sons and three daughters. He has twice the wealth, which was already, by the way, probably the wealthiest person in the whole of the region. And he's vindicated. It's like his suffering carries absolutely no taint. Just a few reflections. So this reminds me a little bit of Peter with Jesus, because uh, you know how um, yeah, the rabbi said you only had to forgive someone three times. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, he's, he's getting it. Lord, do we have to forgive like seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. So Job had a bigger view of God than his three friends, right? But nowhere near as, as big a view of God as God is. His God was probably in a bit bigger box, but God's not in a box. And um, 
interesting thing is that that secret is never told right. He never gets to know what that wider purpose was, even as the play ends. And, um, and in fact, there were three questions that got answered, right? We remember the first one was the heavenly question, is all faith reward-based? Well, clearly no, it isn't. And the earthly question that, that his friends had, is all suffering morally based? Again, no, it isn't. But that's not the deepest question, right? And the deepest question probably is one we can all relate to from sometimes in our lives. David Pawson put it like this. He said, what was Job's greatest agony? Physical pain was pretty bad. Relationship pain was pretty awful, but you know, you do survive and you get through it. The social pain, he was isolated, the stigma, friends walking by on the other side, people taunting him, teenagers mocking him. Nobody really knows, frankly, how to talk to someone who's going through a completely terrible time. So often we pull back and we avoid them. Was it that? Was it mental anguish? Not understanding what was happening? No, it was spiritual pain. He thought he lost touch with God. That's why he was crying. Oh, that I might find him if only I could talk to him. That was his real pain and his deepest problem. And it's often the deepest problem that you and I might go through when we're having a bad time. You can feel a bit numb, almost like you've lost touch. You feel God's too far away. He's not talking to you. He's not dealing with you. And that's the pain. That's the biggest challenge to faith. The pain of losing contact with God. You know how we know that? Because thousands of years later, another righteous man would suffer unjustly. And he'd make exactly the same cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate desolation when you just can't know, you can't sense God with you in the midst of difficult times. So to that deepest question, which is this, can you go on believing in a good God in the face of suffering? The answer is you can But what Job helps us understand is the key is not rational answers. The key is not a neat theology. It's trust because God reveals himself in all of those questions. And um, the thing is, yeah, the problem of suffering, it might be incompletely solved in the book, but it's, it's, it's solved for Job. It didn't exist. Because he'd encountered God in a, in a way that made him know that ultimately when everything is stripped back, as Moses would put it, the eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And that's probably the greatest thing that we can have when everything else is gone to know ultimately that God loves you and that he is for you. And that he is not going anywhere, no matter how numb it feels, no matter how difficult. Why don't we just pray together? Lord, whether we are facing loss ourselves or whether we're sitting with others through their loss. I pray that we can live in this good the good of what we see of you in what we've just looked at. Thank you that your spirit is with each of us right now. Thank you that you are ministering to us. Thank you that you are reaching out. 
and showing us the depth and the extent of your love. Lord, help us to grab hold of that. Help us to take that deep inside and understand those everlasting arms that lie underneath everything. Lord, that there is no level that things can go to that you aren't there, that you aren't underneath. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your grace. Amen.